Welcome to the See Me Now Special Edition Podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, with my co-host here, David Ludlum. Today on the show, we have Western Colorado Community College Program Director of Early Childhood Education, Vale schultz McColl. Welcome to the show. Hello. Good morning. Thanks for being on with us. Oh, not a problem. So if you pretend that people just say they don't have kids and they're wondering, like, what is early childhood education? I mean, they hear terms like kindergarten and preschool and daycare. And but maybe they like, what, what, what is it? What is your discipline? What do you do? So early childhood education actually ranges from um, kind of that late prenatal into age eight, which for the average student would be second and third grade. So we focus on that age range, those early years when they're really developing that their social emotional skills. There's a lot of growth and development going on with our body. So it's like babies all the way to second grade. Absolutely. Which is like a really wide range in the human development cycle. There's like a lot of stages packed into there that you have to account for. Yes, there are a huge amount of changes um, and development going on through those ages from learning language. I mean, you think about it, a baby is not moving yet, and they go from not being able to move themselves to running and kicking a ball, from not being able to understand language to being able to have a conversation with peers and with other adults. So there's a huge range of development that happens during that time. I think that would make the program really interesting, right? Because you're learning about not only language, like you just said, but all these different steps of, of, of human development. Oh, absolutely. And the great thing for my age range is really that children learn best through play. And so that's something that is really fun to do at our level because they're thinking, oh, you know, my experience is in school where you have to sit down and do a worksheet. And it's like, no, at this age, you're counting leaves outside. You're uh, looking at each other's feet and comparing how big is your foot next to mine and how tall are you compared to me. And so it's really much more related to what's going on in the real world. What can they touch? What can they feel? Um, for infants and toddlers, it's what can they taste because they put everything in their mouths, which is perfectly normal. But, um, you know, it's really easy to, once you get started in the field, to become very absorbed in it because there's so much fun, you know, playing with Play-Doh, painting with paints, coloring with crayons, which I'm sure all of our listeners, you know, the minute you say, ah, what's your favorite smell from elementary school? If you say Crayola crayons, they can immediately think of, oh my gosh, I know exactly what that smells like. I love that you just said that because I haven't thought, I, have, I'm, I haven't touched crayons in a while. And I, I, as soon as you said that, that smell came right back to me and just took me to a whole nother place. So I love that. Yeah, that's true. Well, and you said earlier that um, you value or believe that children learn through play. Mm-hmm. And that's, I love hearing that, having had that been my own experience with my own kids. But I've also noticed that as they've gotten a little bit older, that that value may not carry through into when they get into elementary school and into middle school. Like they, there's less recess, there's less outdoor play, there's less unstructured time. How is your philosophy met in the larger apparatus of uh, early childhood education? And is it possible that there could be a reemergence of the value of play based on people like you who are advocating for it? Um, in early childhood, I would say, yes, it is definitely reemerging and we are starting to see it flow upward into elementary and middle school. 
And even in college, if you think about it, um, we have technical trades. And these are really hands-on experiences where they get to play with machinery or create different things like AutoCAD, that type of thing, where they're exploring it. And speaking to the idea of play, it is really unfortunate regarding that we don't have kids outside as much, that we don't have PE every day, because we're seeing children who are having more and more challenges with what we call self-regulation, which means they're not lashing out and they're able to focus and participate. And so when they're in a classroom doing paperwork that they don't see connected to the real world, it makes it hard for them to focus. And so I'm one of the advocates that says, take those kids outside. You know, if you are in a classroom with fluorescent lights and very little natural light, you're going to find that halfway through the morning, the kids are crashing. Their behaviors are escalating. They're having a hard time focusing. But if you can take them outside into nature, into grass, being around trees, that within 15 minutes, they start to reset and they start to feel better and they can socialize. And so it is a movement to bring back more play, to have more recess. The kids need that break. Do you think, you know, starting early with with these young kiddos that, you know, teaching them from that point that it is important to to play and to get outside and they might they may not realize what's going on, but it's it's kind of leading them into this life of outside being outside matters, you know, getting sunshine matters and and playing all the way up through middle school, high school, college, even as an adult? Yes, because we're starting those neural nets. You know, they create so many neural connections in their brain during that time. And so even though they may not recognize it, it's something that they start to connect in their brain. And so as they move forward and get older, that will still be part of those great memories, just like the crayons. It's still back there. And so you still seek it out as you get older. And so even though we're working with their young children, we're also helping to guide the parents. So is as a teacher, if I'm valuing taking those kids outside and I'm saying, oh, let's find some bugs, let's grow a garden and watch how things change and let's value animals and nature, the parents get that indirectly through the children and through the teachers. And so then that's when we start making those societal changes is this I can help the children and guide them, then I'm helping the parents to have a better understanding. Then when we have policy changes, the parents are like, well, wait, you know, I remember my young child being in school and they spent a lot of time outside and they were focused and they didn't have behavior issues. Now they're stuck inside all day. Now the behaviors are escalating. What can I do as a parent to advocate for something different? Vail, you mentioned societal changes. Can we talk about access to early childhood education a bit? And I'm, I wonder if I might lead us there with a, just a quick story. Sure. So during the pandemic, um, I was in the car with my two little girls and we were driving home and they were complaining about having to go back to school because they had enjoyed sort of that home, home learning. And I, I, at that moment, kind of swerved over to the side and hit the brakes and pulled into a neighborhood that I think anyone's clear-eyed assessment of it would lead them to believe that maybe the kids that live in that neighborhood don't have access to broadband. They don't have their own bedroom. They don't have a yard and they probably don't have all the support that they might need to be able to learn, learn from home. And, and, and that it was important to have a place where all people could go that, where they have equal access to the same education. And so like, 
do you, how do you carry that? Is, is that ethos alive and well in early childhood education in terms of working to advocate for access to people and families and kids that might not have um, the resources at home to, to get the, maybe they don't have a yard to be able to play and they don't have the internet to be able to, to, to learn empirically. But like, how do you address those kind of inequality issues in, in what you do and in what you teach? Um, we have been talking about that quite a bit at the state level. How can we make sure we have green spaces? And so I'm part of a program called uh, ECHO, which is talking about early childhood access to green spaces. And so na- nationwide, they're trying to bring in more green spaces closer to different areas that may not have the access to that. And so nationwide, yes, it is a movement going forwards. In the state of Colorado, um, which is really super exciting, in November we passed uh, Proposition EE, which it was the tax on tobacco and vaping products. And that extra money is going into the education field right now, uh, mainly elementary, middle school, and high school. So that's great that they're getting that extra money. In 2023, which is what has me really excited, is... In the state of Colorado, we're going to have universal preschool, which means every four-year-old is going to have access to go for at least 10 hours a week to a preschool setting, right? So that is going to help with those inequities because as I'm sitting on state committees, we're talking, they're talking about, yes, you know, we're, we're going to have universal preschool. And then we're bringing in the question, great, universal preschool is great. Now we have a child whose parent doesn't drive or who rides um, the GVT, how is that child going to find access? And so we're really thinking deeply about how are we going to level out the playing field so everybody has access. So these children can start school on an even playing field where they're all understanding the same basic concepts so they can move forward together and not have any of their peers left behind. You hit on this a little earlier, um, where you start at this early age and how, you know, there's so many emotions because they're experiencing all these feelings and they, they don't really maybe know what they mean, what's happening. And so part of the curriculum that you teach is how to manage those feelings, correct? Absolutely. That is the key area for early childhood education. Yes, we want them to know how to count to five. So instead of sitting them down with a spreadsheet, we're singing the five little speckled frogs. Um, And we do other uh, academic type of learning, but we really want them to be able to manage their emotions. As we know right now with COVID, We are seeing even adults escalate, right, who normally would be very calm. And part of that is learning how to regulate themselves. So if we can help a infant and a toddler, especially toddlers, you know, you hear about toddlers and you think of biting and pinching, that type of thing. We are there to help guide them into figuring out, yeah, I'm frustrated. So what kind of words can I use? How can I modify my behavior so that I can get what I need? And so one of the things we teach them just as an example is called tap and ask. So they take two fingers and they tap their friend on the shoulder and they ask for a toy instead of lashing out and grabbing and picking things. The reason we don't use one finger is because, as everybody knows, the minute you get one finger out, you're poking people, right? Put two fingers out, tap, ask your friend for the toy, and they can say no or they can say in a few minutes. And this helps to 
guide them so that as they're going through elementary, middle school, and high school, they understand their emotions. They value those emotions. Whether you're happy, mad, sad, frustrated, or angry, those are valuable emotions, and we all need to experience them. But how can we do that so we're a positive member of society? Is there a connection between emotional regulation and where we started the conversation around play? And I guess I'm thinking about it in terms of like you're, you're on the playground and there's a dispute and it turns out that there's a child who continuously doesn't play by the established rules of the game, um, whether it's basketball or ring around the rosy. And they quickly learn that if they don't play by those rules, they're ostracized or they don't get to play or kids will run from them. And so they, they learn how, how to regulate their emotions so that they can be part of the game, whatever that game is. Is, that, is there something there too where like they, that, your concept on play helps them establish with each other how to regulate emotion that then in turn makes your job easier? Absolutely. So that's considered unstructured play. That means I'm not controlling it. I'm not sitting everybody down at a table. I'm allowing them to interact with each other and to learn from their peers, which is incredibly powerful for young children. Because then, like you had just mentioned, they're learning that, oh, if I run around and I hold the ball instead of kicking it to you, then nobody else plays with me. And I I don't like how I feel now. So I need to learn how to play with you. So if they can have unstructured play, and again, coming back to my soapbox, outside in nature for extended periods of time, they learn how to interact and how to create long lasting relationships and how to like themselves. And again, we're, we're focusing on that now because COVID has caused so much trauma. So kids need to learn how to negotiate their emotions like themselves and how to understand how other people are feeling. Do, do you have the, do you have an opinion on this? I, I don't, I do just cause I, I get into a little debate with my wife on safety, you know? And so you go to like the park and say, let's just say Canyon View park here lo- locally. There's this great playground, but it's so safe that kids don't really like to play on it. You know, you can't do anything adventurous or you can't jump off something. And if there's all these rules and there's all the padding and like, you know, is there something about like um, safe, an overemphasis on safety that suppresses our the kids' ability to play? And, do, and is that addressed in early childhood education in some way? Is that a, a tension you face, like finding that balance of how much do you let them hit each other or throw rocks or play aggressive games in the spirit of learning versus having to stay safe? What, how does that play out? So absolutely, you're right. There is a balance. And it's something that we talk about regarding natural play spaces, which is, again, part of ECHO, where children need to be able to scaffold themselves. So if I have chunks of wood on the ground that are at different heights, they will do risk taking, which is appropriate for them. So they'll, they'll try the first two ones and maybe they'll fall off, but they don't get hurt, but they're learning about balance. So they'll continue to take that risk taking as long as we allow it and let them experience it and have those items out there so they can experience it at the levels they want. So most of our listeners probably have climbed a tree and fallen out of it. I have done that several times, but I didn't start at the top branch, right? I started at the lower branch and maybe I fell out a couple times and then I figured out how to hold on. And then I tried to go a little bit farther. And right now when you have what I would consider plastic play equipment that is really structured around safety. Absolutely, we need to be safe, but we have to have that risk-taking. And that's so important that we allow children to have that risk-taking because when we allow it at this age, 
then they start to trust themselves and they build that knowledge. So then as they go out in the world, they're able to reflect inwardly and go, "Mm, you know, that's a little bit risky. I tried a risk taking before I, you know, hurt myself. So maybe I won't go quite as far right now. And so they're able to be out in the world as adults taking those risks without hurting themselves or others. I I feel like that is something where, you know, when you're going on a hike per se, um, or going for a trail run, and you're maybe, maybe you're not used to something like that. And so you're constantly looking at these rocks and thinking of all, you know, all the potential hazards. But if you you know, from an early age of experience, this outside world, you're gonna, you're gonna just run and your body and mind are working together and kind of can just hop around without thinking of, oh, no, I'm going to trip on this rock or this branch. Right. And not only that, you have uh, determination, and you have resiliency. So you know, oh, I fell, I hit tripped on a rock, I scraped my knee, it's not bleeding, it's not broken, I'll wipe it off, I'm going to keep going, this isn't a problem at all, I got this. Whereas if they're not allowed that risk taking of having fallen, scraping, scraped a knee, that type of thing, then when the first time that happens, if they're older, they're like freaking out going, I don't know what to do with my body. I haven't experienced this before, I'm terrified. Whereas, you know, toddlers, they run around, they fall and trip all the time, they get back up, look at you, you pat them on the back, tell them they're okay, and off they're gone. I, I really like the, your, how you reference that calibrated risk taking and how important that is. Because sometimes it seems like that gets lost and how important it is to be able to take those measured risks to learn competence socially and physically. And you can, I can certainly see that in kids. And I, I really appreciate that you focus on that. Well, thank you. I do that with my students also. I always tell them when they're writing a paper, I want them to fail forward. So If it's not an A piece of work, then I'm going to give them a chance to learn from that and resubmit it. And so I want them to keep failing forward. Every time they try something new, think of it as failing forward because you're learning something and you're moving forward, right? Have that resilience be determined. Well, speaking of failing, are we, you always hear about these shortages that we have in childcare and in home care and and uh, you see the headlines. I know CNU's been partnering with Mesa County on some things, but is that what is that going to mean for your program? Are you going to see, or how is how is the how's your program helping address that shortage that we hear about all the time in childcare and early childcare development and things like that? Is there a shortage? Absolutely. So Mesa County is actually in a childcare desert, which means we can provide less than fifty percent of the childcare preschool slots that are needed for children in Mesa County. So less than 50%, less than 50%, which is, which is terrifying, right? We are very lucky here on this campus that we have little maps and mini maps that, you know, help out students and faculty and staff. And if there are extra openings, you know, we can help out the, com- uh, the community and we do have a wait list. So, you know, how are we going to meet those needs? And so Proposition EE is actually going to change that, correct? Like we're going to see, uh, hopefully, a, a lot more childcare opportunities. And, and, and for your program, you're going to be needing people to take these classes so they can go out and, and take over all these little four-year-olds, right, that need to, to have that early childhood education. Absolutely. And so we're, we're strategically planning right now 
on how we're going to grow our teachers. And we know one of the best ways to grow people is to start um, from high school. So we have a tech scholar program right now that is in its pilot stage. So we have a group of students who have gone through their first year. They've earned 12 college credits, which means for the state of Colorado, they have their college credit experience. Now they have to get life experience. But our goal with the Tech Scholar Program is that people will come through and take two years. They'll have um, 25 credits when they're done with us in two years. So they'll have their, their college education. And once COVID's done and our students can go back into the classroom for life experiences, they'll start on those uh, hours that they need to get from the school dist- uh, for their, uh, to meet what the regulations for early childhood education at the state licensing level. And for our listeners, whether that be, you know, prospective students or parents or grandparents or neighbors, how, how, do, how do they learn more about this Tech Scholars program? So for anyone who has students that are in the high school program, they can, one, talk to their counselor and let them know that they're interested in teaching education. This can be early elementary or early childhood because we do address uh, both ages because we go through second grade. And they can also come to Western Colorado Community College campus and talk to student teacher, the student services there. And they'll be able to give them guidance on how do they apply for the program? What are some of the requirements of the program um, and how they can go forward? And even if they're senior this year, there is a wonderful program called the Ascent Program, which will allow you to actually be what I guess they call a super senior. So you can come back even after you're a senior for one more year and get some college credit classes. Well, and I think, you know, high school students are probably on their phone right now as we're talking. And so they can go online as well to Western Colorado Community College and get all that information, right? Absolutely. They can email me or someone from student services and say, I'm interested in what you have to offer with the tech scholars. And they'll be able to reply and let them know exactly what the steps are and how to follow through. And so if they did do that, I wanted to learn what you have to offer. Once they're in your program, for people that don't know anything about it, you can you could get licensure, you can get licensed to have home daycare or care, what is the proper term for when you have a, a child care in your home? Family home care provider. Family home care provider. Mm-hmm. Or you could potentially start your own um, early child care Child care provider, um, like a commercial, what's the right terminology, commercial or is it a, a child care facility? Child care facility. Okay. And then um, what other licensures or credentials can you earn besides those two? So ours, we start out with an associate teacher, a teacher who's going to be somebody in the classroom leading the children. We have a director and within there, there's the family home care where you were meeting their rules and regulations. The director may not own a center, but they would be in charge of all of the staff and helping the families out. And then that moves into the associate's degree. And that's where you might work at Head Start or at the school district in one of their Colorado preschool programs. And then we that actually leads into a BA at the CMU campus in early childhood special ed, 
which means you get a teacher licensure for kindergarten through second grade with an endorsement regarding special education. So it's a it's a wonderful stair step that as a tech scholar, you can come in and get the associate teacher and then the teacher certificate. But you've got classes that walk you up so you can you can take it as far as you want. Or maybe you love working in the classroom and they can continue to be a teacher as well. So there's a huge diversity of potential opportunities for anyone that that enters your program. Absolutely. And we have people who are looking at other degrees as well, such as kinesiology, because they want to work with young children. So they'll come and take a couple classes from us. We've had um, social work. They also come in and take classes, psychology. We recently had a gentleman who was getting a bachelor's in um, computer programming, and he got a job in Vegas. <clears throat> and they told him he had to come back and take some early childhood classes because he was going to be writing programs for young children. Well, how do you write a program for a young child if you don't understand the growth and development? And he was great in the classes, very dynamic, wanted to learn a lot and was amazed at how much growth happens in early childhood. And he was so glad that he was actually required to take those classes before starting his job. Listening to this whole podcast, right? You're, you're obviously very passionate about what you do and early childhood education. And so we're nearing the end of the podcast, but how, how did you get here? I know um, you had said it took you 12 years to get your bachelor's, right? Absolutely. So I started out actually in banking. I thought that was my groove. Um, after eight years, I realized that was not my groove at all. Um, they're kind of banking Bankers can be a little cranky. Um, they don't like to play with Play-Doh. They don't go outside and hug trees. So I figured, you know, maybe that wasn't my niche. So I um, was interested in early education. I had two young boys. I started out with the program here when we were Mesa College. And Virginia Beamer had an early childhood program where my boys went and attended preschool. Well, she had a parent piece, so the parents had to come and attend as well. And so coming here as a parent and watching how they were instructing my children really inspired me. So I decided to stay. I had my own facility at the time, or I opened my own facility. And so I worked and I came to college to get my bachelor's, so it took me four 12 years. Very proud of that. I was persistent. I got it done. And then after that, you know, I was still very passionate and I wanted to be involved both at the state level. And so I went on and got my master's in early education as well so that I could share the knowledge and the passion that I had. What is it about that specific age group of, of kids that that interests you? Why? Like, what is it? What What's what's drawing you there besides the Play-Doh and the tree hugging? They're actually really quite brilliant. They haven't had the box put around them that we sometimes have as adults. And so everything to them is new and interesting and passionate. And it's such a great thing to look in their eyes as they're watching a ladybug crawl across the ground. And then all of a sudden it takes off when they blow on it. And just... Their passion for life really helps to remind me how amazing life is and how wonderful our world is and to not be jaded by things like COVID-19 and having to wear a mask and be restrained. Well, Kelsey mentioned we're kind of wrapping up the segment here, but I had one more question I wanted to sneak in if it's okay. Um, so this, if you think about, I don't know, maybe even 
just a century ago or a little more than that. I mean, childhood's kind of a new invention. Like it was, it was very, very, it wasn't a long time ago that like you had kids so they could have their help on the farm or they go work in the coal mines or whatever. And it, like, there wasn't a such thing as childhood. It's like really new. What is special about this age of childhood that's so important for um, societal evolution and for culture and community? And like, w- like w- what, what is, what is special about childhood? I guess is what I'm asking. I would say what is special about childhood is the fact that they can explore. Again, they're not bound by the box that we put ourselves in as adults. We, they look at other people and immediately think, you're going to be my friend. Let's go do something together. Let's go hang out. They have that, that safety and that trust. And they're allowed to explore things at their level when they have, you know, play as part of their learning. And so I think by having and valuing early childhood right now, we're actually creating a new generation that as they go forward with their education, they're going to be thinking outside of the box. They're going to be thinking like Elon Musk. Why should only the government be in charge of taking people in outer space? Why can't a private person, why can't we modify things and make it easier? Why do we have to use this instead of that? So my hope is that because children are allowed to have that open exploration is that we're going to see a whole new wave of innovations. We're going to see a society that is less lockstep and focused on money and power and more on how can we support the human race as a whole and move forward while working with nature instead of working against nature. Okay. Sounds nice. like sounds like happiness levels are, are, are rising just listening to you talk. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here today, Vale. We really appreciate it. Oh, not a problem. Thank you so much thank for you. having me. This concludes the See Me Now Special Edition podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, my co-host, David Ludlam. And today we spoke with WCCC's Program Director of Early Childhood Education, Vale Schultz-McCole.